Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast with uh, me, Peter White, as the host. This quarter, Global Solar Editions jumped 38 gigawatts. That's a a third quarter record, despite political shortages, with China and the US up particularly a long way. We talked to Andrew Swantanar today, our solar analyst, uh, who takes us through the numbers in just a moment. Our latest EV uh, and charge point report forecast is out. It shows petroleum will be down dramatically by 2027 as the uptake of EV cars starts to create a problem and the entire oil industry will be unstable by 2031. Um, Then Harry Morgan is going to show us uh, how aggressive China is getting on hydrogen um, with Sinopec, the biggest oil producer there, taking on a big green hydrogen project. We'll start off with Andreas Wontenar taking us over the global... um, additions in solar yeah so so like you say it was uh, 38 gigawatts of solar added this quarter uh, which is also up 38 percent on uh, year on year from last year's quarter three and also like you say it's a record quarter in some ways for for specific uh, markets like the us and china uh, it's china's biggest quarter ever for the rooftop segment specifically it's a, it's also its biggest non-fourth quarter since 2018 so so it's it's a very powerful quarter. And I looked at this and I thought, well, I had been getting a bit pessimistic and thinking only 160 gigawatts this year. It's probably more like 169. And I'm even starting to wonder if maybe my predictions of a stunted quarter four might be wrong as well, because, yes, there will be more supply chain issues for the projects that will have that will be trying to get into uh, grid connection in Q4. Uh, because there'll have been more time for the polysilicon price and the other issues to, to to manifest. But if it wasn't that bad in Q3, maybe it won't be that disastrous in Q4 either. Uh, and maybe those issues will take actually a bit longer to manifest than I thought. So it might even be more than 169. Yeah, you're going to ask something, Simon, I think. Well, I was going to say, I, I remember this time last year, China had a huge surge of installations in the fourth quarter and uh, took us a, a while to get that reported into the, the early part of this year. Is that still the case with China? Uh, yes, it's going to be. Uh, it already is. Actually. So everything's you, backed up. What, what I mean is everything's backed up in the last quarter. Well, the answer is that, yes, there will be a Q4 surge in China. Well, there, there is, I mean. And I'm not actually entirely sure why, because there isn't, I don't think there's a subsidy deadline, uh, except in, well, there actually is in the rooftop segment. But I'm expecting a big utility scale Q4 surge. And I think we actually see that. If you scroll down near the end of this week's issue, I, I had to go into bullet points for all the solar projects in China. There were 18 of them with an average size of 200 megawatts getting reported. Uh, most of them beginning construction, admittedly, but several of those were commissioned uh, in just this week. So you can already see that it's happening. And I, I'm not actually entirely sure why. Is there some commercial reason that would happen? Do you think, even in the absence of like a uh, government policy, maybe, maybe it's an end of year state level target you often you often see the same the same with wind power and it's often due to the fact that people plan projects to end at the end of a certain year purely because that's when there will be phase outs of support i mean there may not be a phase out of support this year but there could have been um so just in terms of planning project timelines it makes sense to to have as long as you can to actually get it done by the end of the year there's also i think and we we mentioned this last year was that there's a, a fair chance that a lot of projects are announced as complete before the end of the year, just, um, rather than them being actually physically in operation, just to sort of state that they're over the line. We, yeah, it's difficult to always tell in terms of Chinese reporting. 
I think the, re- the really interesting thing that I found about your story, Andrews, was that it, it, there seems to be this massive contradiction at the moment within the solar industry and what we're hearing. Was the IEA released a report this week on renewables, and it was very clear that they they're very concerned about these supply chains issues and and the fact that polysilicon is up. I think it's something like quadrupled in price. I mean, you've been covering it throughout throughout sort of the the price rise. While and like while that should the sort of overall impacts of these project of these increases in commodity prices should increase project cost by sort twenty five percent. There's another report out this week from uh, NREL that said that the cost of solar in the US has fallen by 12% this year, despite the fact that our commodity prices are up. So it's, it's very difficult to say whether or not these supply chain issues are actually causing material increase in the cost of these solar projects. Um, and it's, it's I, I mean, personally, given that I'm not looking into solar every day, I'm finding it very difficult to realise what's actually happening um, and sort of and how the price the, dynamics are changing. Andres, what's the um, module price in say an American utility installation as a percentage of the total costs, it's quite small, isn't it? Probably below 30%. Because I think America, oh, something also to consider is that it's not necessarily exactly the module cost in America because they have a lot, they have high uh, importation costs. So if, if the, like if, if to, to put it very crudely, suppose it, suppose you're paying equally for the module and actually just the transport right now with all the clogged up sh- shipping. If the module cost doubles, that's only a 50% increase in, in the actual cost of buying it and then shipping it. And then in America, you have a lot of high regulatory uh, transmission and other costs. Um, so I would say a module cost can't be more than 30% at the utility scale in America. I know even in India, where they have very low non-balancer systems costs, you still very, very rarely see module costs reach 50%. And that's really the cheapest market out there. And then I think we have a graph from an old um, from an issue in the past couple of weeks uh, from NREL, I think it was. And the module cost is like uh, as low as... It's it's a small cost. 15% I mean, per, in no, a rooftop. So I mean, rooftop permitting. Res, is, residential, especially. Yeah, so rooftop, the permitting is much larger than it needs to be. And NREL did point that out quite recently. And uh, those NREL numbers are quite important to look at um, because I think that's the secret, Harry, that what's happened here is that people are importing the modules anyway. They're paying um, import duties, uh, tariffs. They're paying increased prices. They're paying the extra shipment, shipping charges, and it's not affecting their projects that much. Actually, another thing that we probably that is probably quite important come to think of it is all of the first solar modules are not silicon at all. Yeah. So they're just not affected by the polysilicon price rise. They're also what made in America, do you so think they're not they in... Have in the states, Andres. Sorry. What market share do you think they have in the states? I think they have about five gigawatts that they of manufacturing capacity there. So, uh, and the states is about. Uh, let's see, actually, that this quarter they installed six gigawatts in this quarter. So they must be at, at least a quarter of the market. At least, yeah, in, in the states. And that's just it's not even it's not affected by the freight um, costs either because it's not being taken overseas. Do, do you think that we're also at a sort of stage now where we've got sort of economies of scale in terms of the supplementary infrastructure? Like, is it a lot easier, especially through the Biden administration, to get a solar project across the line? Is there sort of a lot of red tape that's been removed or that's sort of making these projects a lot easier to push across? Um, I haven't really heard anything about red tape removals. I mean, there's this thing called Solar App that's going to hugely reduce the red tape on rooftops, but that's still only like 1% of the market. Uh, it's it's being rolled out very slowly, in particular municipalities. 
Biden, uh, you can rely on them to spend lots of money and, and revive the solar IC, uh, ITC and that kind of subsidy. I don't know so much about removing red tape. Economies of scale. Well, it's yeah, it is always getting larger and there's consolidation in the developers. So I would expect some economies of scale to improve. And, but, and what do you think? Going, what do you think going forward? Then, because obviously um, the 38 gigawatts is probably bigger than, than many people expected. The IEA is saying that we're going to have a sort of record year for solar this year, and we're going to have a sort of a much bigger quarter four. And you and you've, you've said yourself that it's likely that the supply chain issues will will not actually prevent it from being a record year. Do you think the sort of going beyond into 2022, 2023, that the supply chain is going to stop sort of solar solar growth sort of year on year, or do you think that it's just going to sort of slow things down from what it could otherwise be? You know, solar's younger than wind, and I think. Every year is a record year, um, yeah. <laughs> in, in a sense, in the sense of, oh, if it's bigger than last year at all, then it's a record year. But really, you could say, well, if it grows 20 percent or above, then it's a, a strong year. And if it grows less than that, then it was a weak year. Let's actually do a little bit of maths. So I think yeah, so but but, my figures. Is, uh, sorry, what are you going to say? No, I'm just saying in summary, we, let's just sum this up. That really there's massive headwinds against solar and it's barely affecting it. I think that's the key to this story, that if you imagined all systems go situation that might occur in the middle of 2023, when more polysilicon supply comes online, when a a few of these other difficulties are behind us, like the transport costs, then suddenly we're going to see this continue to grow exponentially, whereas at the moment it's still growing despite the odds. Yeah. I think this year is going to be a 15% growth year. The year after that could be well over 30%. Okay, that's, that's, that's brilliant. So the second story we're going to look at uh, was, was um, the report that uh, I've produced finally this week on um, the number of EVs uh, by 2050. And um, we've done a whole number on the infrastructure as well and how fast that will develop in, we've done about 40 countries. It's an inescapable conclusion that sometime along here, if you stop selling petroleum, the oil industry um, suffers incredibly badly to the point of bankruptcy. And it's it's now we've got um, hard numbers. We've got a, what we consider a conservative forecast. And by 2050, only 76 percent of all the passenger cars will still be using internal combustion engines or some form of fossil fuel. 1.63 billion will be either electric and we do expect some of them to be hydrogen, but um, basically it will be zero emissions transport. And that's we're only looking at passenger cars. There'll be more um, uh, trucks going electric. There'll be more commercial vehicles going electric there'll be many two-wheeler and three-wheel transport going electric we treat we've treated this only on passenger cars because it's a consumer purchase and there's no way to avoid this you know what happens is a year six months after we come out with these numbers um, the other forecasting companies adjust their numbers to be um, similar it's still below ours and so we're expecting this to be a fact within a year and investors uh, will continue to drive down the share price of oil and eventually 
uh, of oil companies. And eventually oil itself, the price will come down. And when that happens, you're going to get to this balancing point and it will be arriving around 2027, 2028, where the price of oil and the amount of debt uh, on the company's books uh, means the assets balance out the um, the debt. And most of these companies, if they continue to pursue oil only, will be effectively worthless. So how how, how much of the uh, the EVs um, and the clean vehicles do you think will be hydrogen? I, I think less than one percent. I mean, I think they're a persistent. So I think this is a funny shape, this curve of, of the hydrogen. The cost isn't low enough. Um, there are some uh, uh, suppliers, particularly Toyota, who really believe in hydrogen. There are certain segments of the market like uh, long distance lorry driving, class eight lorries that will go hydrogen. Um, there are as a result, there will be more R&D into hydrogen. Eventually, we'll get a successful pickup or large commercial vehicle going that route. But it's going to take some efficiency when most of the R&D and the effort is going into electric vehicles. The smaller vehicles will wait until hydrogen spread itself across five or six territories. Yeah, I agree. I think I yeah, just to add on that, um, uh, the past the sort of transport side of things is 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 very much part of the hydrogen forecast that we're going to have coming out in the next sort of few weeks, uh, probably actually in in January now. But the the role of purely based on how and and we've talked about this in previous podcasts how um, it's not always the best idea that dominates the marketplace. Uh, is the one that gets there first and the fact that lithium ion is is very much dominating the passenger vehicle market means that it probably will continue to do so it's only really where you've got a really clear advantage for hydrogen that it will take place in in, in the transport market within passenger vehicles it's therefore only going to be where you've got really high utilization so where you can't really afford to be stopping and charging for um either stopping and charging for sort of two hours at a time or using fast charging stations on sort of a more than like a daily basis so when you've got things like taxi drivers driving around um, and it's sort of uneconomical for them to be out of action for so long that's then where you can maybe see a case for hydrogen in the market looking at the percent of fuel cell electric vehicles in the passenger vehicle space that we expect to see by 2050 it's less than two and a half percent um so it is it's a real minority of the vehicles but then as, as you start to get larger um in things like vans which again like commercial vehicles you, ne- you have this need for high utilization uh, the value really starts to increase so for for, for like the commercial vehicles i think we've got something like 22 percent run on hydrogen and for for sort of heavy duty transport the, the number then gets a lot higher so it gets up towards sort of 80 percent purely just the fact that yeah it, it's the space you've then got the space to actually store the hydrogen on board so it's yeah, there will be a crossover in the size of vehicles when you suddenly see this inflection of oh yeah well it makes much more sense to see hydrogen here than it does uh, uh, sort of battery electric yeah but if you if you start to get to 2040 and hydrogen cost comes down and if fuel cell research has gone well you you will get to the point where it's no longer uh, an economic penalty to drive a hydrogen car and w- yeah, we don't know after that point you know it will be dependent on how the rest of the hydrogen economy goes I certainly don't see lithium-ion batteries being displaced by it any time in my lifetime. Small sub-segments with, for a particular reason in the transport market will go that route, and R&D will get done, and, and, and it will get cheaper. Uh, and will it have a role in maybe winkling out the last localised pockets of um, fossil fuel resistance, where maybe it's not economical to build out the EV infrastructure? 
I, I don't I don't see um, you've got to remember that at the profits levels and at the economies of scale that you have for distributing oil right mm. now, when you're down to a hundred million cars all over the whole planet, it's almost impossible to get oil to them. No, okay. Economically. You, you know, the infrastructure for oil collapses. So if it's not going to be EVs that have a, an infrastructure cost effectiveness problem. It's going to be oil. And uh, you say that this is based on just Q2 and Q3 numbers this year. Uh, and that's the conservative forecast. Yeah, so, it's, not, it's not entirely based on that. So what really happened, the way we calibrated um, our research originally was in Q2 2020, when the world was saying, oh, EV car sales have collapsed. But when you looked into it, what you found was that the Chinese car sales, EV car sales, had collapsed because they removed the subsidy from electric vehicles for one quarter. And the hail of protests was so loud that they put it back on. So you could take those two quarterly numbers and you could see, well, this is what a market behaves like when it has no subsidy. And this is what a market behaves like when it does have subsidy. And we started to build out our model then. What we've now seen is we've seen that it, it, it uh, qualified. We've seen it that those assumptions proven in the European market, which has now as a European directive to end the delivery of new internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. And as everyone's seen that, you know, I mean, we've we've had this whole collapse in the the rhetoric around internal combustion engines since then. We've had uh, in in uh, February 2021, we had General Motors saying by 2035 it wouldn't make any internal combustion engine vehicles. Now we forecast that already because if you're in a world where Europe won't take any, you've got to justify the R&D and the delivery and the supply chain on a much smaller audience. So you start thinking about that and doing the sums and it's obvious that you can't sustain diesel, petroleum, hybrids, uh, hydrogen and electric uh, cars and you have to pick one. And if you want the share price of Tesla, you have to pick electric. So we forecast that in late 2019 that GM or Ford would make a change in direction. And they did at the beginning of 2021. Ford came out and then the two big uh, holdouts were Toyota and uh, Volkswagen, who during the course of this year have reluctantly agreed to launch 20 odd models in the next couple of years. So suddenly all, all the cars, all their supply chains are adjusted. They've, they've had meetings with Chinese battery owners. They've, they've changed where they're spending their money. This is the, the, th the reason I say it's a conservative forecast is I expect internal combustion engine sales to be under what the car companies expect and that they'll end up shifting more of their supply chain into electric vehicles more rapidly over the next two to three years. So I'm expecting this to be there, there to be accelerators kicking into this to make it happen sooner. And it's been it's been a long string of sort of vindications for our forecasts over the past year or two, hasn't it, on EVs? I, I, th I think you know it's it's. I feel almost sorry for people that have been forecasting in this market for forty or fifty years, like the IEA. They're used to things not changing, and they expect things not to change. They're, they're trying to adjust to change, whereas we come out of markets which grow from zero to uh, you know. I mean, a Wi-Fi. Uh, it was is a 20-year 
period or a 15 year period, it's gone from naught to 20 billion chips a year. That's the type of market we followed. And if you've been following the price, you know, electricity, the only thing that's interesting is that the supply and demand of things like oil and coal go up and down. And that's the only thing that changes the price. Otherwise, nothing changes. I think we should move on now. I think Harry, um, I think there's, uh, I, I'd be interesting, you know, this idea that there's a, a chicken and egg around hydrogen that, that you came across at, uh, at COP26. And you're looking at how Sinopec in China has started to, uh, to eat into that. Yeah, I mean, I'll start off by saying that there isn't a chicken and egg problem. Um, it's something that it was a phrase that I heard literally time and time again at COP26 from people, as you said, in the energy sector who who are not used to rapid change. Um, people saying that, oh, well, we haven't really got a demand for green hydrogen yet, so no one's going to invest in making it and no one's going to invest in making it until we've got um, and we're going to invest in sort of hydrogen fuel cell trucks until we've got a hydrogen supply. Um, and it's just these people and often it's people in the sort of adjacent to the oil industry who are are sort of saying this because they don't want it to materialize the hydrogen economy so i think that's that's why we're getting that chicken and egg statement being used so often and it it was in sort of every room that i i went to at cop 26 which was a massive shame but what we've seen this week from cinepec is that there really isn't this problem and that you can already start to develop hydrogen production knowing that there is a market there for it the project that cinepec are uh, producing is a it's a fairly small green hydrogen project in um in china i mean i say it's fairly small it's going to be the largest of its type when it comes online in 2023 but based on the, the projects we're seeing being announced it will be that that won't be a record that's held for probably more than a few weeks i think something like twenty thousand tons a year that it's supposed to be producing through solar power the hydrogen that's actually being produced from it will be used to uh, used in the one of their oil refineries. So it will be part of this move from the oil sector to actually reduce the carbon intensity of their product. Obviously, in terms of the oil industry surviving, this isn't a great thing, but in terms of actually, it, I think it's actually a net gain once you consider the, the development of the hydrogen economy that, that this project will bring, especially in China, where we there is definitely a lot of development going on, but it's, it's very much behind closed doors compared to what we're seeing in the likes of Europe. The what is really obvious from this is that there is this demand for hydrogen already. I think it's something like 73 million tonnes of hydrogen are consumed each year, roughly fairly evenly between oil refining and ammonia production. And because this is hydrogen supplies from grey hydrogen, which is incredibly carbon intensive, I think it's something like 2%, 3% of, of global emissions, there is this immediate need to switch this grey hydrogen to green hydrogen. And that provides a perfect first route to market for, uh, for producers of green hydrogen. Can I ask, isn't that true everywhere, though? If you take it on trust that the hydrogen economy is going to come into being because at least 100 projects we've reported on in the last year and a half, then the best way in is to undermine the existing supply so you've got customers straight away. Yeah, exactly. And and there are people doing this. There's uh, there's, there's projects going on in Spain where you're, they're, they're looking to replace uh, grey hydrogen for ammonia production. But it's very much people being like, oh, well, we don't have hydrogen vehicles yet. So um, there's no way that we're going to be using hydrogen vehicles anytime soon. This is why produce it. I think it, it, the argument comes from people who um, don't understand how broadly hydrogen can have an impact across the economy. Uh, obviously, the headline, headline 
clean tech side of things is within the power sector where hydrogen won't have an impact until fairly late in its life cycle and uh, in transport which is is the same is the same case and also within the heating which again there's there's several arguments there as well so it's really within these initial markets of ammonia and oil refining that we're going to see the early early adoption of hydrogen and then sort of within sort of things like green steel i mean we saw a massive project announced this week with iberdrola and h2gs and in things like cement making so it's so this really is you know twenty thousand tons it's really uh, in china's scale of things i mean they produce 3.9 million tons it, this is a tiny percentage of the output but like, like all these things it's a trial if suddenly someone says, oh, you've got some hydrogen, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fix my green steel problem. They'll, they have the scale to suddenly ramp it up by 100 times, don't they? Yeah, exactly. I think this and this is a pilot project and it's but it's not going to be a small pilot project either. So, I mean, 20,000 tonnes, it, it's not obviously going to solve China's hydrogen demand issue, but it will it will show that it can be sold and um I think once that product comes online in 2023, uh, it will be evident that green hydrogen is cheaper than grey hydrogen. I mean, I think natural gas prices in in China will still be pretty high at that point. So, uh, yeah, green hydrogen will be significantly cheaper and all suddenly all of the investment you see into hydrogen production will be green. Uh, it definitely won't be blue and it definitely won't be grey. Um, Especially if you're trying to produce it from imported natural gas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the idea of, tra- of travelling halfway around the world with well, let's, if you do it with gas, it's suddenly it's seven dollars a kilogram in China instead of being a dollar fifty in America. And if you do it with hydrogen, it's going to be even more expensive. It's just it's a perfect opportunity for China. As soon as they grip this, they go, oh, we can do this and we can price it at our, our, our own price. This is a, the equivalent of digging up our own coal rather than buying Australia's. You know, we'll have our own hydrogen. This will this will be easy, and, I, and I, it's going to muscle up and become the largest supplier in this market. I mean, Europe's going after this market with a vengeance. Um, now there's subsidies in America. America will start to see straight on this, but China doesn't matter when it wakes up. Its need for hydrogen it will be so obvious that it will just scale off the back of very large solar and wind plants. Harry, I was going to ask you about the electrolyzers used in this project. And do we know anything about the Chinese electrolyzer industry for hydrogen? It's not something that we've, um, there's been a lot of coverage of in, in sort of the European media. There are several companies that most people probably won't have heard of. There's several sort of shipbuilding companies that actually make them. Um, another one's called um, Sanzu Jingli. Uh, they, they're one of the leading electrolyzer manufacturers. And uh, Shandong, uh, I think it's Sekizai C. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, <laughs> it's yeah. There are there are uh, electrolyzer manufacturers in China, and it will probably end up being similar to the solar industry in the sense that. They might be slightly lower efficiency, but the ability for China to build them out of scale, especially if they crack on as we expect that they will, means that yeah, China probably will have some extremely low cost electrolyzers in the near future. But they're keeping it very quiet at the moment. Um, and so I think until there's an obvious market for electrolyzers and a lot of purchases going on, then that's suddenly when we'll see, oh, actually, China are really trying to undercut the European market. And to be fair, that's what the European market are worried about. Uh, and that's why there's all of this early activity is because Europe have been stung in this way in the past. Um, and I think 
taking the foot off the gas in Europe will suddenly mean that China's electrolyzer manufacturers do suddenly become dominant in the marketplace. Did you say Longi? Did you mention them? I didn't mention them, no. Okay, because I know they're a solar uh, provider and they've got a relationship with uh, Sinopec in um, in providing um, uh, in a, through a subsidiary in providing um, a hydrogen unit. You know, that's the beauty of companies that even if that the only thing they do is solar or the only thing they do is oil or the only thing they do is railways in China, they haven't been doing it for that long. And so they're not married to it. They're happy to change direction or add another string to their bow. It's it's just doesn't happen in America, uh, and America's the only scale that can stand up against China. So it's um yeah so so Longi apparently uh, uh, is is uh, helping Sinopec produce net, uh, produce hydrogen as well. So and I don't know if that's through an electrolyzer or some kind of direct relationship between solar and the creation of hydrogen. Um, but that's you know that's the, typically how um, how China gets gets around these problems. Uh, they don't need to go and do a partnership with somebody in uh, one of the European or American electrolyzer uh, um, makers. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, there is a presence of Chinese solar developers trying to develop electrolyzers, and I mean, Longi have actually made their own electrolyzer business unit, so of SunGrow as well. So it's definitely a market that these solar developers are hoping to take their learning and apply it to. Uh, so, I mean, Shanghai Electric are doing the same with wind, uh, with wind to then hydrogen. Um, and interestingly, Cummins have also tried to set up base in China as well. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not any other sort of US companies, maybe Plug Power, Bloom Energy, um, try and... I, I don't think it, it, it's possible to, to avoid it. What will happen is somebody will, you know, you get an RFP in your inbox from China, you, you answer it because the scale is too large and you answer it with your best people. All of those will have had that by now. And the, the the worry will be they'll steal our ideas. But the bigger worry is we'll miss out on this market. So, you know, they, they have to um, respond and, they ha- and, and you will find them popping up over there soon. How, how important is cheap electricity? Um, I mean, it is fairly, fairly crucial, but it's obviously the best way to produce green hydrogen and the best way to do it at low cost is to be running your electrolyzers on green energy 24-7 and so so if you had free electricity you'd still have to pay a lot for the electrolyzers and other things um so not necessarily so i mean electrolyzers currently account for around 30 percent of the cost of Mm. um of green hydrogen then uh the electricity so yeah, the electricity is about thirty percent. The electrolyzer is about thirty percent, and then the other, the remaining sort of forty percent is split like split between uh, your operating costs and things like your, but actually buying the water to run it. Obviously, all of these prices are going down, apart from maybe the water price. So yeah, economies of scale will see the actual capex of these electrolyzer units fall like dramatically over the next sort of five ten years. Um, so, so if you want to use the sea, yeah, realistically, you've got to. Um, run a desalination plant because you don't yes and and as a result you might also be selling the water from the desalination when it's too much to just make hydrogen out of it so I, i kind of wonder if they that goes hand in hand there's also a 
a lot of research going on at the moment about how you can reduce the need of, of purity within the water. So uh, Anapta, one of our sort of our, our hydrogen favourites, I guess, are um, have developed a system which you can run on tap water, so you don't actually need purified water to run through the system. Um, and there's, there's a fair chance that they're going to try and develop that that you can run on salt water. And I think the amount of effort we see, the amount of R and D we're seeing from these electrolyzer manufacturers trying to um, push for salt water electrolysis means that it, it's something that will happen within the next five years. I mean, the, the opportunities from that are massive. Imagine if you could build a project by the sea in Central Africa, where you've got unreal solar resources, um, normally pretty good wind as well, and then you can just, you don't have to worry about transporting water to the plant. You can actually just suck it out of the sea um, and then produce your hydrogen on site. I think that then suddenly is a point where Africa has a real opportunity to becomes sort of the global centre for sort of hydrogen production, and especially in terms of supplying into Europe, I think is a great way of, it's a it's also a great way of the global effort in terms of climate change to actually be built in with international development. Um, I think that's something that, especially at COP26, we really saw a lot of focus put towards, um, and sort of climate finance could really become a part of that. Solving the issue of of water supply is going to be one that we really start to see within the next sort of five years really take centre stage within hydrogen production. And if China starts to solve those puzzles, and given China's, the amount of money it's spending on Africa, Europe could end up with Chinese suppliers on its own doorstep, um, you know, owning the uh, hydrogen supply that comes out of Africa. And that's why perhaps this, uh, th- this, this week, when uh, the European Commission has launched a global gateway with 300 billion uh, uh, euros uh, for global partners. Perhaps one of the things behind that is let's, um, if we're going to have some kind of energy relationship with Africa, let's own it. Let's not let the Chinese own it. Anyway, that's an aside. That's another story that came from the issue. In fact, this is one of uh, the strongest issues we've produced in a while. Um, it's it's funny, it comes the week after Thanksgiving and there were very few American stories in there. But if you go to our website and uh, uh, and look at um, forecasts and data, uh, you'll be able to see the report that uh, we flagged in, in uh, sales of EVs in the energy sector. And if you uh, look at weekly analysis, you can flip through the first uh, few hundred words of each story. If you need to see some of those stories, uh, you can get in touch with Simon, Simon at rethinkresearch.biz and he can let you see the issue on a trial basis. Um, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Um, it's been great uh, um, talking through the stories. Thanks very much for uh, listening into our, our podcast.